Hey there, it's Dita. Thousands of miles of fiber optic cable are lying at the bottom of the world's oceans. They carry more than 95% of the world's data, everything from phone calls to emails to military secrets. And recently, those cables have become center stage in the Cold War between the U.S. and China, as each side tries to map where those cables are and lay as many cables as they can. So this week, we wanted to share a story all about them from a podcast we love called Things That Go Boom. It's hosted by Lacey Healy, and it's all about the ins and outs of foreign policy and the efforts to keep us safe. I'll let Lacey take it away. Morrow Bay is a sleepy seaside town in Central California. There's cute downtown shops, a historical society, hiking trails. But like a lot of tourists, we're here for the main event, squelching our toes in the sand and staring at Morrow Rock. It's a 23-million-year-old volcano, and it's huge, taller than the Washington Monument. And if you live here, Mara Rock is the gateway to the Pacific Ocean. But for the rest of us, well, the real gateway is under our feet. Mara Bay is home to one of the West Coast's major undersea cable landing stations. This is one of a handful of places where our internet actually enters the United States. And all of that wiring it's buried under the beach, begging to ask us one question. Well, where do you want to go? That's Nicole Staroselsky. She's mapped dozens of cable landing stations across the world. I asked her to take me somewhere I've never been. Auckland, New Zealand. So you're in Maryland. First, you have to cross the US. You're going to go through a number of underground fiber optic cables. So you go through these exchange points, and then finally you get to a cable landing station. Like at Morrow Bay. So this is usually kind of a nondescript box at the shore. You go into that cable landing station, and you go through a subsea cable. And then you go on the bottom of the ocean. Where you're hurtling along the seafloor in cold, pitch-black darkness. You're moving at the speed of light. And you might go from there to Hawaii where you might surface another cable landing station. That would be in the rural, unincorporated town of Kauai on the Big Island. You might come up at Fiji, similarly go through a cable landing station there, and you would come up right outside Auckland. We'd swim up through crystal blue water and switch to a smaller local network, sort of like taking the bus from the airport. Which would be not as fast, probably. <laughs> and so you would slow down in your journey before you finally reached whatever house you were going to, um, which may or might not even be connected by a fiber optic cable. It could just be kind of an old coaxial cable. It's a pretty neat trick. Give Nicole any two locations, and she can probably describe the Internet's path between them. This is crazy because there are at least 500 known cables operating globally, and demand is exploding, which might be obvious given that it's 2023. The internet is all we seem to talk about these days. And this season, it's all we're going to talk about at Things That Go Boom. So here's where we thought we'd start. The internet, that big, vast expanse that powers our lives and every single thing we do, it turns out it's actually just a bunch of wires at the bottom of the sea. So we wanted to know what happens when someone 
cuts them. We're back. I'm Lacey Healy, and this is Things That Go Boom. Many people do not know that the internet is on the bottom of the seafloor. That's Nicole Staroselsky again. And you might imagine she gets this question all the time. Someone will turn around and be like, yes, but isn't it eventually going to satellites? And the answer is no. The internet is going to continue to be under the ocean. There are a couple of different reasons. One is that if you shoot a signal with no interference down like a ray of light through a cable, it's going to go directly point to point across, say, the Atlantic Ocean versus having to go up through the air, through all the clouds, to a satellite, back down to Earth. So satellites are really used for areas where there's not cable connectivity, but over 99% of all transoceanic traffic goes through undersea cables. Which means that in a way, 99% of our lives also run through those wires. Cables underpin our daily lives in so many ways, because everything today is digitized and everything is networked. So to give you an example. Tonight, jaw-dropping images of an extraordinarily powerful and now deadly volcano erupting in the Pacific Ocean. On January 15th, 2022, the Hunga Tonga Hunga Haipei volcano, located in the Pacific Ocean, exploded. This eruption severed the cable network that linked Tonga to the rest of the world. Now, not only was that a disaster, that there needed to be emergency communication, and there wasn't, but one of the things that people don't think about is, well, financial transactions are enacted through the internet. You couldn't access your bank accounts. The registers might not even work at the stores that you go to if you think about how digitized every system is. So you just kind of stop the economy. But cables under the sea aren't just a 2020s thing, or even an age of the internet thing. The first transatlantic cable was laid by this guy, Cyrus Field. And that was probably the first private cable in the sense that we think about private cables today being laid by entrepreneurs. So somebody goes out, gets a bunch of funding, has like a great grand vision of doing something outrageous. Field made a ton of money in the paper business in the early 19th century. And that was all fine and good, but the work, it was kind of boring. Until the 1850s when he met a family friend who told him about this crazy new idea. Telegraph technology was already blossoming in the West. But what if two ships connected Europe and North America directly by dropping one of those wires into the sea? When he heard this idea, Field was in, but not exactly prepared to make it happen. He was a little bit of sort of on the outskirts of the communications industry. He wasn't like an engineer trained up in like, you know, the British Academy that had worked on telegraph systems their whole life. And so he he did a lot of fundraising and a lot of kind of invented a lot of schemes to get people on board. He pitched the British government, Congress, anybody who might pony up. Tens of millions of dollars later, the first transatlantic cable was made of seven small copper wires melded in England then coated in latex, tarred hemp, and iron. Ships from both the U.S. and England set out to connect both sides. But there was one small problem. The cable did not last very long at all. On day one of the expedition, the wire snapped. And this happened again and again. That first cable lasted long enough for Queen Victoria and President James Buchanan to exchange one message. And otherwise, it was a total disaster. It took the better part of a decade to get 
another line up and running. There, and there were various circumstances related to that, including the Civil War in the United States. In the end, it takes around 30 trips overseas and 12 years to complete the world's first functioning transatlantic cable. And that transforms the sense of time and space during that period. Like, all of a sudden, you wouldn't have to wait a long time for ships to bring news or reports about what's happening on the markets. It enabled news about major events to circulate globally a lot quicker. And so people became tied into this sort of like constant update of information from other parts of the world. Not to downplay the internet, but a lot of these transformations, this idea that you could get information from anywhere to anywhere instantaneously, I'm sorry, that happened in the 19th century. And as the first global cable took shape, so did its value. The early telegraph cables, a lot of it through the 19th century was funded by, essentially aligned with sort of British empire. Now these were not necessarily all military cables. In fact, they were rarely so. They were commercial cables. But they aligned with the paths of sort of colonial trade routes, and they helped to solidify that kind of economic network. But then you also had cables that extended through the Mediterranean, around Europe, through the Red Sea, into the Indian Ocean, all the way over to Singapore. Yeah, we have a sense of when cables started to be used for national security reasons by countries. Oh my gosh, they were used for national security oh, like from the very beginning. Because you had all these far-flung colonial territories, governments often saw cable messages as a way of strategically circulating information that would keep their empire secure. I think because the communications networks changed, the idea of what security was changed, the idea of influence changed, the perception of and ability to have influence over remote territories changed. So that the cable sort of enabled all of that. It also created an entire new industry, staffed with chains of people on every continent who were basically playing a 24-7 global game of telephone. And they would have these offices in big cities. And you would go to a desk and you would say, I want to send a telegram. And so you would write down your message and then they would translate that message to a cable operator. And that cable operator would be using Morse code. Stop it. Stop what? You're talking about me and Morse code. You know what? Joke's on you, because I know Morse code. Those tones would travel underwater between stations, where they were received and sent off again and again, until finally they reached their destination and their final translation. All these men felt like they were on the brink of like causing a global catastrophe, because they felt the information that came through their hands, literally, was so important. They felt like the weight rested on their shoulders. Did a bomb go off somewhere? Did somebody important die? Transoceanic telegraphs eventually became phone calls. Hello? Good morning. You hear all right, sir? Yeah. Thank you. And then internet signals. What, what is internet that, anyway? Internet is uh, that massive computer right. network. Mm -hmm. The one that's becoming really big now. What do you mean? That's big? How does one... What do you write to it? Like mail? And today... All of that undersea traffic passes through cables no bigger than a garden hose. And the cable industry, well, that's a tangled network of infrastructure and ownership. So you have a lot of different 
people who own the cable systems, and it ranges. So there are like independent sort of startup cable systems. You could think of them as startup cable systems. They're not startups in the traditional sense, but like independent cable systems like that only own a cable. And then they have, they lease out capacity. Then you have consortium cables. Which are like a bunch of companies all go in together. Google and Meta, for example, are big buyers in consortium cables or big parts of consortium cables. They also have their own cables. But there are also companies all around the world, like every single country has a telecom company that has some investment in the cable system. But for a system that literally powers our society, owned by so many different entities, it's actually pretty hard to know exactly where that network lives once you drop down under the sea. Governments don't tend to own cables, and there's no main global regulator. There's also no master map. Nobody really has a full and entire picture of everything that is happening in the industry. It's so kind of complex and layered that it's difficult for one person to see it all. Which is what got me worried about how we protect our own infrastructure from our rivals. See, when we decided to make an episode about undersea cables, it was because we'd heard a lot of headlines like these. Britain's most senior military officer has warned of a new threat posed by Russia to communications cables that run under the sea. Washington has warned Pacific Island nations against accepting an offer to build an undersea internet cable in the Pacific from China's Huawei Marine. And that's to say nothing of the apparent added threat of sea life. Google reinforces undersea cables after shark bites. Don't you just love that headline? Let me just say this definitively. Sharks are not eating undersea cables. Sharks are not a threat to undersea cables. Sharks are a myth. (laughs) Please put that in there. (laughs) See, we thought we were out to answer one big question. If these cables do so much for us, how do we make sure that nobody messes with them? The answer was more complicated than we thought. You're listening to Things That Go Boom. I'm Lacey Healy. If you're looking for a daily guide to cybersecurity news and policy, sign up for the Cyber Daily from Recorded Future News. It serves up the day's most interesting and important cyber stories from our sister publication, The Record, and then aggregates all of the big cyber stories you might have missed from news outlets around the world. Just go to therecord.media and click on Cyber Daily to get all you need to know about the world of cybersecurity right in your inbox. Hello, I'm Adam Fleming from the Global Story podcast from the BBC World Service. We are looking at Lena Khan, the face of the US government's battle to regulate big tech. She's already redefined the way we talk about monopolies. Now she's taking on the likes of Amazon and Meta. But who is she and will she win? The Global Story brings you fresh takes and smart perspectives from BBC journalists around the world. Find us wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts.
When we think about the fact that our lives pretty much hang by a series of wires under the sea, there are two ways to think about risk. There's what could happen in today's world, the all-powerful what-if, and then there's what actually has. Which brings us back to the Tongan volcanic eruption of 2022 and to Marion Kupu. If I was to count how many times I've been talking about that day, Marion lives in the country's capital of Nuku'alofa. She's a radio broadcaster. And in the week before the volcano's eruption, Marion says that she noticed weirder and weirder changes in Tonga's environment. I think it was around Friday. Someone called me and uh, told me the water at the waterfront is acting strange. The shore was bouncing between high and low tide. The waves swirled in circles. And when it goes out, they leave residue of dust, of black substances on the seabed. Then there was the stench. The volcano was spewing sulfur into the air. And I thought it was from our septic, and I thought it was the neighbors, and I thought it was the the, the pigs next door or something. So it's uh, Saturday evening, normal day. We're at home doing chores and everything. Around, I think, 5 or, or close to 5, that's when the first bang happened. You watch war movies and you sometimes can almost feel the best movie's effects is when you can almost feel like you're in the movie. That was the experience that we had with the vibration of everything. The volcano's final blast, it was 1,000 times more powerful than the nuclear bombing of Hiroshima. If we have experienced uh, eruption and volcanic eruption before, we would have known. We were thinking, oh, I think this is the end of the world. We're all going to die. Jesus is coming. (laughs) Marion and her mom, husband, and two kids piled into the family car for her brother's house. All we knew was just move to higher ground, move to higher ground. It was an evening, right? It's five o'clock, you know, the sun's still out and everything. And then all of a sudden, it was black. First, heavy pebbles start falling from the sky. And then the ashes started falling. We could hardly see our, the, the, the road, the windshield. We were so fortunate that some of the youths were just standing beside the road with water bottles, just pouring it on top of the windshield of the cars queuing, trying to evacuate. And they were all covered in dust. The island's internet flows through just two undersea cables, and both weren't just severed. They were buried under thousands of pounds of sediment. It was scary because we were trying to let our family know that we were okay. And at the same time, our family overseas was trying to get hold of us. After four days, the government gave Marion's broadcasting office limited satellite phone and internet service. She phoned her family and posted to Facebook that she was still alive. And that is when the media requests started to pour in. All of a sudden, I get a phone call. So I picked it up and I saw the number. I don't know the number. And this lady said, is this Marianne Gupu from Tonga? And I said, yes. And then I can hear the background. They were just clapping. Like I, So I found out later it was the whole studio. They were clapping. And then the lady was saying, do you know you're the first person from Tonga who has spoken outside of Tonga? Besides becoming one of global media's main sources for updates from Tonga, 
Her station satellite turned Marion into a kind of local Wi-Fi dealer. We opened our satellite to the public, but it started with our friends and families. She'd give them the password. And they would be like parking around our office to talk to their friends and families. And when people outside were hogging the internet a little too much, Marion's team would just change the Wi-Fi password. And then they'll come back again <laughs> and ask for the passwords. And the funny thing is, the cops that were standing in our intersection, they'd be fighting on who's standing there because they would be given uh, free access to Wi-Fi <laughs> when they're working. But not everyone was as lucky as Marion. At its best, the outage cut off Tongans from loved ones who worried if they'd made it through the blast. At its worst, the blackout made it nearly impossible for people outside the island to send money to those in need. Four out of five households in Tonga already relied on money sent overseas electronically by friends or family. Those payments make up nearly half of Tonga's entire GDP. And nobody knew how long this dance would last. The cable was just so deeply buried with a whole new uh, seabed tight and seabed topography that um, the cable had to be found on either end to pick those back up. That's Darren Griffiths. He's head of maintenance for Optic Marine Group, a cable company based in Malaysia. And he told us that's why, in the end, it took five weeks to get Tonga back online because a repair crew had to construct nearly 60 miles of cable. And at this point... You might find yourself asking, as we did, what the heck that looks like. The answer is pretty similar to how Cyrus Field's crew laid the first transatlantic cable in the 1880s. But today, companies can also bury cables within the seafloor to protect them. Most of the industry will use a plow. But not something you'd see, say, a farmer drive. Instead, think giant robot hurled overboard, wearing snow skis, armed with a knife. So it's quite a big, I'd say, sort of a car-sized plow. It has its uh, four legs, should I say, and it balances itself in terms of pitch and roll to make sure that it follows the seabed. It's got sort of a sharp blade on the front, which goes through and penetrates into the seabed. And you see the plow just disappear into the abyss with the, the cable going down. Sometimes you see some sea life floating past as you're uh, looking at the cameras. Darren can tell you all kinds of stories about thorny fixes. Tsunami waves passing through. You have snow, ice, uh, and cold temperatures. I had to plan and make sure as I was going through a military zone. But one scenario you won't really hear about from people in cable maintenance is one where they're sent out to repair deliberately sabotaged wires. Over 70% roughly of cable damages or cable cuts come from bottom contact fishing or vessel anchors. My name is Ryan Wapshaw, and I'm the general manager for the International Cable Protection Committee. I also work as an independent consultant in the submarine telecommunications and power cable industry. If we imagined like a pie chart of problems that are facing cable security, how big of a piece would you give to any particular entity, let alone a, a country's military, actually attacking cables? The industry does put a pie chart together, and malicious intent or sabotage or acts of government or, or military are not on that chart. And the reason is, is it would be such a small sliver of actual occurrences that don't even occur annually to be able to capture. The ICPC estimates that the vast majority of incidents are not even natural disasters like Tonga. 
Ryan estimates that those are less than 5% of incidents every year. In the last year, and I would argue even longer, there have been so many media accounts on vulnerabilities to cable infrastructure, both on the malicious side, but also COVID presented so much more awareness of how we're all interconnected and why. There were sensationalized articles about how vulnerable the overall internet is because it's all strung out on cables on the seabed and nobody knew it. One particular story this year raised eyebrows. Taiwan's Matsu Island is now facing a digital blackout. Matsu Island is right off the coast of China, closer to Beijing than mainland Taiwan. And similar to Tonga, all of the island's internet flows through just two cables. The Matsu Islands have gone without a normal internet connection for more than a week now. In March, those cables were severed. Taiwan ultimately blamed two fishing and shipping vessels, both registered to China. Who do you think was behind the cutting of the cables, or do you think it's possible that they could have been accidents? Well, at the moment, we cannot rule out any possibility. That's Wen Li, who leads Matsu Island's chapter of Taiwan's ruling Democratic Progressive Party. Others said the perceived quiet part out loud. If there's a conflict between Taiwan and China, the initial target could be a cable landing station. I think when you do read these accounts, especially when there's kind of purported malicious intent, it's a bit of a new era of risks in a way that if there is a malicious damage to a cable, it's not occurring during a declared wartime. It's gray zone tactics where a government could be behind supporting a fishing vessel that happens to damage a cable. But here's where this story gets complicated. When we started reporting this episode, we heard all of these stark warnings about how fragile undersea cables are. So we expected to have long, deep conversations about the stakes of it all with our guests. Instead... I'm not going to answer that question. I can't give too much of an opinion about whether or not that's happening. I think even speculating on the geopolitical tensions that are present and increasing is something that we wouldn't really necessarily speak to. Turns out that government and industry, no surprise, tend to talk really differently about cable security. On one hand, you've got a whole lot of hand-wringing in Washington. What is this about at a higher level? Don't enable our adversaries, especially China. And on the other... Nothing's impossible, but they're not areas that we focus on or deem to be front and center from a cable protection standpoint. How do you protect the internet when the experts can't even agree on the main threat? I thought back to Nicole's story of the very first cable, that the Big Bang of global communication happened over a century ago. And every generation since has relied more and more on cables. So I wondered, how much do we already know about keeping them safe? There's different instruments that have been developed over time to deal with cable-related issues. The most recent of these is the Convention on the Law of the Seas, and the oldest one is the 1884 Telegraph Convention. That's Camino Cavanaugh. She's a cybersecurity researcher and a visiting senior fellow at King's College in London. And you heard her right, 1884. And the Law of the Seas, that's from 1981, over 40 years ago now and before the actual internet. Whether those policies are still getting the job done in 2023 is under more scrutiny than ever. So I think they're really good at providing a basis for the development of good practices, including you know, designating subsea cables as critical infrastructure, 
ensuring that legislation is adopted and implemented in, in sharing of information between industry actors and, and government. Those quote-unquote good practices, they're where you might find the most common ground between industry and policy wonks, at least in theory. And where significant progress could be made would be taking a look at these and implementing them <laughs> or strengthening them where they are already weak. For example, states actually punishing damagers of cables, intentional or not, or setting up government protection zones. One of the issues is not every state has the capacity and the resources to provide the protection and the security and so forth that is needed. And not all companies some of those countries have the resources either. So in the European context, there has been quite a lot of activity, especially around the different coastal guards in the European Union that are working more collaboratively together. But governments aren't just worried about the cables being damaged. They're also concerned about who's tapping into them. There's a big elephant in the room here. It's espionage. Over the last few years, Washington has started involving itself in the cable industry more and more for alleged national security reasons. I think it is a pressing issue, especially if you look at it from this competition between the U.S. and China in particular. And that's not so much being waged beneath the waters, although I think many journalists would like that to be the case <laughs> based on the reporting. But this is very much taking place from a broader trade and economic perspective. And there you have a lot of decisions that are actually having quite an impact. Before we go any deeper, let's get this out of the way. States have actually been tapping cables for almost as long as they've been around, even recently. Perhaps you remember these headlines. Explain in this simple hand-sketched drawing, complete with a smiley face, maybe a newly disclosed way the NSA is monitoring the internet. The intelligence agency has tapped into the communications link, such as undersea cables connecting Yahoo and Google data centers around the world. That is according to secret documents from NSA leaker Edward Snowden. In 2013, Edward Snowden revealed that the U.S. and England had been combing through data pulled from around 200 undersea cables across the world. And because those links are overseas, they can do so without any oversight from the U.S. government. The NSA spying is becoming a public relations crisis at home for the Obama administration. This is not NSA breaking into any databases. It would be illegal for us to do that. Today, America's answer to the fear of China doing the same is to restrict its construction and ownership of undersea cables worldwide. Take the Simi We 6 project. Once finished, it'll be nearly 12,000 miles long, connecting Asia to Europe through the Middle East and Africa. Construction was supposed to start in 2022 and be carried out by HMN Tech of China. But U.S. officials secretly convinced investors to use an American supplier instead, claiming that China would use the cable to spy on allies. It's the sixth project that America's gotten Chinese companies booted from over the past few years. It's not clear to me what the end objective is of all this. How far can you go? I know that in strategic regions, it is important. And in relation to ensuring that one's networks and systems are protected, yes, you need to do that. I mean, everybody is concerned about that. It's not just the U.S. and Europe. It's the Chinese. It's the Kenyans. It's countries across the globe. There's also a push in America to cut ties with cable infrastructure owned or operated by Chinese companies. Earlier this year, the House passed the Undersea Cable Control Act, which would force the White House to ban American cable technology from being sold to Chinese companies. According to Telegeography, which maps the global cable network, 
the U.S. and China are still physically connected by cables. And when it comes to confronting cable espionage, well, welcome to the corner of geopolitics and bureaucracy. It's across the street from Laws Are Us, where the shelves are fresh out of consensus on whether it's okay to pilfer your enemy's data. The fact of the matter is, wires often sit in international waters, where laws around tapping them are murky. A lot of the decisions are coming out in relation to concerns around China's espionage, counter-espionage activities, when other countries themselves are concerned about U.S. and European espionage on the cables or on networks writ large and so forth. But you can imagine that major powers aren't rushing to open that can of worms. Because, let's face it, data collection is useful to states. What's the incentive for any country to shelve one of its best tools for keeping tabs on enemies and allies? Would you want to give up the chance to read your ex's Google searches? You know, if we're all okay with the fact that states can engage in espionage activities, then states will do what the law allows them to do. Instead of cracking down, states are coming up with more and more hard security policies around cables. Meddling in construction deals, tech sale bans, it's all happening under a bigger and bigger banner. One that says the safest internet is one that's built on our terms along our alliances, and if you don't respect that, we'll sanction you. Those ideas are not exactly met with fanfare in the cable industry, where there can be a feeling that policymakers are waxing on a topic and history that they don't understand. Many instances, it can be true. There are other governments that do have a very clear idea of how these things work, and they have been very engaged in the area for a long time. There is always a risk, evidently, of over-securitizing the issue so that there may be less focus placed on ensuring that some of these basic measures that the ICPC and others have been promoting for, for a long time, there's a risk that they may be sidelined because there is so much of a focus on the hard security side of things. There have always been moments across cable history, back to the telegraph era, where there were threats from either credible or not credible threats from hostile foreign actors in relation to the cable network. So the telegraph cables, for example, were disrupted during World War I. That's Nicole Staroselsky again. It's not that their attention is wrong or their presumptions are wrong. It's that it's misdirected compared to where the real threat lies. I will give you an example, right? So there are current regulations in effect globally in some places that require cable ships to get certain permits before they repair a cable. And this can delay the repair of a cable for weeks or potentially months. So even if there's a lot of focus on the potential for a cable cut, at the very same time, they're not facilitating regulation that would make it easy to repair those cuts. Now, the maintenance industry does pretty well, and they generally repair things as soon as they can and in record time. But are governments sending a whole bunch of extra money to the maintenance side of the industry or the supply side of the industry to make it like a little bit easier to lay redundant networks? No, they're not. They're instead worried about things and spending money on things that are not actually going to help as much as investment in the industry would. But the industry isn't exactly without its blind spots either. The International Cable Protection Committee had its annual plenary back in April. And Ryan told us that for all the talk of threats, some other subjects got a lot less oxygen. 
you know, it's a sign of the times. A lot of people focus on kind of maritime awareness and gray zone tactics and some of the issues that are arising in today's world. I think we had one presentation talking about how fiber optic cable coming into their country gave the citizens of that country the ability to have broadband and how that should be deemed as a human right to have access to the internet. In general, Ryan thinks a lot less about what or who could harm a cable. Yeah, there's all these threats, smattering of threats. And more about preventing one or even a few damaged cables from becoming a full-blown internet outage. The best answer to security, in a way, is to have redundant infrastructure. No cable owner has one cable between locations. They own or have access to capacity on a multitude of cables, creating what we call a mesh network, that if there is damage over here, you can reroute your traffic over here. It's a strategy that's already in play in larger countries like the U.S., but not in places like Tonga or Matsu Island. In the cable world, they call these thin routes, and they exist because the return on investment is considered too small to bring in investors. Ryan says that there are other options, like mapping. Not everybody's out there to do harm to a cable, nor do they want to. I would dare to say, if you didn't chart cables, the incidence of cable damage due to phishing and anchoring would go up drastically. That alone would have more significant impact than somebody trying to locate a cable to damage it on their own accord. Can somebody find a cable if it's charted? Of course. Can somebody find a cable if they don't know where it's charted? They can as well. It feels dumb not to consider that countries might choose to take advantage of how much people love and need their internet. After all, the internet is a big deal. We rely on it to communicate, pay for things, do our jobs. And we've all found ourselves at least once or twice in that horrible, dark place where we know that our tech isn't working. And the only way to fix it is by clicking and reloading and watching and hoping and probably asking for help. We're calling this season of Things That Go Boom troubleshooting. Because that dark place, it's where we all find ourselves now. At a turning point in the internet, where AI, misinformation, and compounding cyber threats threaten to topple the world. And it's easy to take the pressure of that knowledge way too far. To get caught up. To be tempted, for example, to take statements from megapowers with massive cable networks at face value when, let's be honest, their citizens aren't really the ones who stand to lose from damages or even from geopolitics affecting construction. The people who are really at risk in this situation are people like Marion. Having the blackout and no communication from the world, period, it gives me that crave that I'll never take my mobile phone for granted, my communication for granted, because it just makes things harder for everything and for everyone. I remember when the first time I was talking to my family on the phone, and then uh, a colleague of mine, a Tongan community radio who we work with, saw me online and contacted me as soon as he saw me online and said, Marianne, I need someone to talk to right now from Tonga, like right now. Most of the Tongan community in Brisbane on the radio program, all they did was play 
gospel songs and pray because they have not heard anything from us here in Tonga. So I got my boss to to jump online. Okay. And um, sorry. As soon as my boss was online, and everybody there in Australia was just crying with joy. Katarina. <laughs> everybody there that was listening to the radio were just crying with joy, tears of joy, because um, now that um, they've been updated that Tonga is okay, only three deaths, and uh, yeah, they, we were fine. Listening to a story from the podcast Things That Go Boom. It's hosted by Lacey Healy and distributed by PRX and Inkstick Media. You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Dina Temple Reston, and this is Click Here. We'll be back with a new episode next week. Looking for more of the cybersecurity and intelligence coverage you get on Click Here? Then check out our sister publication, The Record, from Recorded Future News. You'll get breaking cyber news from reporters in New York, Washington, London, and Kiev, among others. And you'll see for yourself why it attracts hundreds of thousands of page views every month. Just go to therecord.media.